structure. The moon of Mars. Of course I'm going to specify. There's a monolith. We've discovered a base on the back side of the moon. The scientist pulled out one of these mosaics and showed this base. Geometric shapes, there were towers, there were uh, spherical uh, buildings. There were very tall towers and things that looked somewhat like radar dishes. But they were large structures. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. Welcome to the Zero Brain Podcast, kids. This is Dave Grave, and tonight we're going to be reading Chapter 9 from Somebody Else's on the Moon by George Leonard. But first, the news. According to the summitnews.com, China launches new app allowing citizens to report others for expressing mistaken opinions. This new platform will target anyone who criticizes the dictatorship's ruling CCP, disputes the official version of the country's history, or engages in misinformation. DailyStar.com Visionary plans for roll-up TVs, smart contact lenses, and invisible fucking computers. Roll-up TVs and smart contact lenses and invisible computers are being developed by a major breakthrough following 10 years of research. Scientists have created a new crystal that can be used to make computer displays naked to the human eye and boost smartphone battery life. The revolutionary material was developed following 10 years of research and could soon allow today's electrical circuits to look just like glass and bend like paper. What do we got here? Next article. New York Post. The U.S. government is actually gearing up to share information about the reality of UFOs with the public. The Pentagon UFO report, they acknowledged the reality, a whistleblower says. Next article. TheSun.co.uk, world's eeriest place. Inside Skinwalker Ranch, a UFO hotspot probed by the fucking Pentagon, where cows have been found inside out, and the soil is fucking radioactive. A specialist team has been recruited to probe Skinwalker Ranch. And this is the same place where the Pentagon funded a top-secret study to find out information on UFOs as well as alien fucking life. This isolated spot at the center of some of America's most mysterious cases, including horrific cases of cattle mutilation and sightings of bulletproof shape-shifting creatures. Now, if Skinwalker Ranch is unsettling for you, no problem. Because humans could erase unhappy memories with groundbreaking new neurotechnology. The memory editing technique called decoded neurofeedback, or DEC-NEF, was created for the treatment of PTSD. But some critics say it could potentially be used to implant false fucking memories. Total recall much? Hashtag Arnie. A radical new technique to target and erase painful fucking memories has raged huge ethical problems, says a leading neurologist, because it threatens to artificially change a person's personality. Alright, cue narrator voice. Chapter 9, Ray Streaming from Craters. A startling theory. The moon is a strange place. 
Still strange and mysterious, notwithstanding the U.S. Ranger, Orbiter, Surveyor, and Apollo flights. And at least 32 Soviet Lunik and Zond moon probes, unmanned but including moon landers, orbiters, and return missions. There are still countless puzzles as to the moon's origin, its contents under the crust, the nature and purpose of its occupants, etc. Not the least of these puzzles are the white rays which stream from many craters in all directions. Some of these rays, an example given from Tycho, have been traced for 1,500 miles or more. There are rays so wide that they cannot be singly distinguished but form a mass of pure white around the crater. Others are narrow, like a chalk line. Others are short. Nobody knows how they got there. You can be sure there is no lack of theories, however. But in the end, most astronomers and astrophysicists concede that they are mysterious. Properties of the rays. Whenever one proposes a theory to explain a phenomenon, he must be certain that it covers all examples. We must list all known properties of the rays, we must describe all types, and only then can a new theory be compared with the list to see if important areas are covered or left out. Number 1. Rays do not appear to have sufficient depth to cast a shadow. 2. They are white and do not show up well under oblique sunlight when there are pronounced shadows. On the other hand, the rays become very enhanced under full midday sun. 3. Rays typically cross the darkened, smooth maria, ridges, mountains, and valleys with no interruptions. Where they stop suddenly, there's usually another crater at that point. While most rays are reasonably continuous, a few can be found which stop, start again in a few miles, stop, and start again. 4. There are some oversystems of rays, notably the system of crossing rays from Copernicus, Kepler, and Aristarchus. Number 5. Some rays do not emanate from exactly the center of a large crater, but are tangential to it. 6. There are many examples of craters which have pronounced rays coming from one, two, or three directions only. More than one crater can be found with a single ray streaming from it. 7. Many rays, example given from Copernicus, seem to end in a tiny white craterlet. Rays range in width of up to 10 miles. 9. They appear to consist of dust-like particles which are perfectly spherical, judging by their appearance from all angles, and which cling to everything touched. Number 10. They seem to have the same reflective quality as white rocks from inside the moon's crust. Textbook theories as to the origins of rays. Velikovsky, that insightful genius who confounded the orthodox scientists with his worlds in collision, was of course vilified in return, but he had the senses to admit that the rays were a mystery and did not create an explanation merely to explain all phenomenon within the context of existing knowledge. He said bright streaks, or rays, up to 10 miles wide radiate from some of the craters. Their origin, too, is not known. All observers are not as cautious. The Flammarion Book of Astronomy supposedly put the matter to rest with these words. When a crater is formed, dust is flung out in all directions. 
The particles describe long, parabolic jets in the vacuum, their length being enhanced by the fact that the lunar force of gravity is six times smaller than on the Earth. They fall on the ground and form long rays diverging from the crater. The halos of the fine recent craters Tycho and Copernicus can be seen in a small telescope. The rays are a fine white and stretch to considerable distances. Fred Whipple, in The Nature of the Moon, 3rd edition, 1968, writing from the vantage point of more experience following several moon probes, makes a statement which may be in accord with the old orthodoxy, but clashes violently with the observations of the Apollo 12 astronauts. The huge rays from the great new craters, such as Tycho, cannot, however, be explained by white dust alone. The U.S. Ranger 7 pictures have confirmed Kuiper's telescopic observation that the rays are rough and rocky. White rocks, such as appear in the surveyor pictures, could cover the surface of the rays sufficiently to keep relatively white for long periods of time until they were slowly covered by debris thrown from more distant parts of the moon. Their increase in relative brightness at full moon, however, requires further explanation. The extent to which scientists will go to protect A, the orthodoxy, and B, one another, is astounding. Whipple's statement reveals his concern over the fact that dust from whatever source is always falling on the moon and that even if it is only a few particles a century over a given area in time, and time is what the moon has plenty of, a surface whiteness would become obliterated. Now, if you assume that the rays were caused by splash-out from meteoric impacts or volcanic ash thrown up and out, or a whiteness showing through cracks in the moon's surface resulting from alternate heat and freeze, then you must have an explanation for the fact that they still show white and get even whiter during full moon. Now, suffice it to say, while a few astronomers have flatly stated that they did not know the source of the rays. Most have been content to accept the easy but unscientific explanation that splash out from either meteorites or volcanic eruption has been responsible. Why the old explanations cannot be correct. A meteorite hitting the moon and making a crater would tend, unless it was a very oblique hit, to create a ray pattern around the crater. There are as many craters which have only partial ray systems as there are those are which are fully patterned. There are as many craters which have only partial ray systems as there are those which are fully patterned. An oblique hit by a meteorite would not create a single ray. The splash out would be more general over the direction of flight. I've sketched below a few good examples of odd ray systems around some craters. These ray systems are not peculiar to small craters or to large craters. They occur in all sizes. Example given, craters of half a mile in diameter on up to many miles in diameter. Another strong consideration not examined in the books I have read is that of overlapping ray systems, a new impact would if this theory is the true explanation of rays, tend to partially obliterate another nearby ray system. But this is never the case. All rays seem to show up clearly. Even in the case when three ray systems from Copernicus, Kepler, and Aristarchus overlap, a good selection of ray types can be seen in a single photo, plate 18, 
69-H-28. The two overlapping coupled rays systems, a single ray, feathering, a ray stopping at a craterlet, and the whiteness of the crater bottoms are all visible. One of the most striking arguments against the splash out from meteorite or volcanic ash theory is the fact that the rays do not always stream from the center or the main body of the crater, but sometimes from a point tangential to it. Dinsmore Alter in Picture Guide to the Moon writes this, A simultaneous study will show many peculiarities in the ray system of Copernicus. One is the fact that the major rays are not radial to Copernicus. The second is that in Mare Imbrium, north of the crater, there are many plume-shaped short rays which are radial to Copernicus. The point of the feathers are toward that crater. In a few cases, a craterlet is observable on the pointed end of such an elementary ray, and in nearly all cases, a brightish spot can be seen there that can be assumed with some confidence to contain a craterlet. Examination of the two major rays extending northward into Mare Ibrium shows that they have a vast, complex structure. Despite overlapping, there are places where this structure can be observed as composed of the elemental plume rays, which are radial, although the complex rays are not. Let's pause to think about it. Does the above statement give you a clue? Consider what the basic properties of the rays are. Consider what they cannot be. And then consider the prime thesis of this book. A new explanation for crater rays. We have seen clearly thus far in the book that intelligent, purposeful residents are on the moon. We've seen results in their efforts, as well as indications that they are there now. It is probable, although admittedly there is no solid evidence for the following statement, that the moon has been occupied for a long, long time, perhaps thousands upon thousands of years. How do the occupants of the moon move around? The answer to this question lies in the area of common sense. Suppose they arrived on the moon from another point in space by spaceship, perhaps powered by a means totally unknown to our scientists at the present time. By extension, they move from one point on the moon to another by spaceship. In some of the photographs of the moon, there are objects which may well be these spaceships. They range in size from smaller than a football field to a mile or more in diameter. Readers batting an eye at this size estimates are referred back to early pages of the book to the references by some scientists to the fact that we may be looking at the artifacts of extraterrestrials without recognizing them, and especially to the comment by the Canadian scientist about mental straitjackets. It is but one step now to the new explanation for crater rays. Flying objects on the moon land at the bottom of a big crater. Having a fine, powdery white dust at the bottom, they go back and forth to other craters to deliver or to get a supply of something. The fine, powdery white dust sticks to the underbellies of the flying objects. As the flying objects vibrate above the ground, the dust gets shaken off. Because the flying objects have definitive places to go, the dust tends to fall as straight rays along certain paths. In the case of very busy craters, the occupants in the flying objects have many places to go in all directions. In the case of some quieter or more specialized craters, there may be an interchange only between that crater 
and a single other point on the moon. Hence, one single ray. Admittedly, this explanation is tied to Earth person's perception of commerce, but no explanation based on natural phenomenon fits, and we know from visual evidence that objects come and go in the craters. We're, and we shall shortly see that in any object landing in these white bottom craters must pick up a white dust, which is then subject to being shaken loose. I searched the NASA literature for reference to the rays and for new data on them. I talked with Dr. Farouk Elbaz, the geologist who had been so closely associated with the Apollo flights. He confirmed that the rays consisted of a fine white powdery dust or soil. He referred me to the preliminary scientific report from the Apollo 12 flight. This was the manned landing on the moon. I quote from that report, The material at the ALSEP deployment site, appeared to be loose and fluffy, and according to astronaut Bean, was difficult to compact by merely stepping and trampling on it, i.e. the material constituted one of the white rays of Copernicus. The fine-grained surface material had a powdery appearance and was easily kicked free as the astronauts moved on the surface. During the Apollo 11 EVA extravehicular activity, Astronauts Armstrong and Aldrin noted the ease with which fine-grained material was set in motion while they were walking on the lunar surface. Now, the tendency of the loose, powdery surface material to move easily in the lunar vacuum and the one-sixth gravity environment imposed operational problems that were augmented by the fact that the same material also exhibited adhesive characteristics that resulted in a tendency for the material to stick to any object with which it came into contact. As a consequence, equipment and spacesuits became coated, and housekeeping problems arose from the dust brought aboard the LM at the conclusion of EVA periods. Fine-grained material adhered to the astronauts' boots and spacesuits. The television cable, the lunar equipment conveyor, ULSEP components, astronaut tools, sample return containers, the color chart, and the cameras and camera magazines. It appears that under the shirt-sleeve atmosphere, 5 pounds per square inch pressure, of the command module, the fine, dusty material lost its adhesive characteristics. Those who hypothesized that the rays streaming from craters consisted partly of boulders were wrong. Those who guessed that the rays shone from cracks in the moon's surface were wrong. The rays are simply a thin covering of white powdery soil which sticks to everything, including the underbellies of flying objects. This explanation is totally in accord with the properties of the rays as we now know them. Flying objects not necessarily emanate from or return to the center of a large crater, hence rays which are tangential. Flying objects may well make many stops in their travels, hence feathering of the rays, and streaks which sometimes connect two major rays. The white streaks go right across rills, ridges, valleys, mountains, as white dust falling from a flying object would. Raymond A. Littleton points out in the modern universe, and there are the strange bright streaks, some 10 miles or so broad, that extend out from many of the craters but have no perceptible shadow effects and must presumably be an extremely thin superficial phenomenon. 
they are they also run right across all other irregularities without any resulting change in color or width. I think it is clear to the reader that crater material splashed out in an arcing curve at time of impact or volcanic action might be terminated at a high mountain range, whereas a flying object progressing in a generally straight line and shaking off white powder will create a continuous ray as we see crossing mountains and valleys alike. The most convincing aspect of this new theory is that it accounts for the brightness of the rays after millions of years of space dust slowly accumulating on the moon. The large craters such as Tycho, Kepler, and Copernicus, which have the largest ray systems are probably, in Patrick Moore's words, Precambrian, over 500 million years old, in which they are at least as ancient as the oldest terrestrial fossils. They may be perhaps considerably older. The Apollo 17 preliminary science report infers from the data that the time of information, the time of formation of more than 90% of the cratering on the moon was 4 billion years ago or earlier. They must, of course, be aware of the craters currently being made by spraying out. The fact that the white powdery soil can be seen today with such brilliance can probably be attributed to a continuing process that of countless trips made by many flying objects over countless years, rather than to an impact in the Precambrian or earlier times. An interesting sidelight on the Apollo flights to the moon, after several manned landings, thousands upon thousands of photographs, samples of soil, and rock, is that the greatest mysteries of the moon have come no closer to solution. We still do not know the origin of the moon. The cause of the craters? The nature of its core? Nothing. Feznikov and Oparin in Life of the Universe Right, despite the enormous development in the last decades, no new explanation of the formations of the lunar surface has been advanced. The so-called meteorite theory of the formation of lunar craters, first proposed by Gruthizen in 1824, is still seriously debated today. One can search the scientific reports of the Apollo flights in vain and still not find a serious inroad to these, these mysteries. Patrick Moore admitted in a survey of the moon, which written prior to the man-moon flights, that the plain unwelcome truth is that we are still very much in the dark as to how the moon's craters were formed. In the same book, he states clearly how much of a mystery the rays are. The moon is full of puzzles, but it is probably true to say that the most baffling problems of all are set by the bright rays. Not even the most casual observer can overlook them when the moon is near full. But so far, nobody has been able to find out precisely what they are. Astronomers of the world, this chapter is offered for your consideration. And now that we've contemplated myriads of flying objects ceaselessly going back and forth over the moon, lugging, ferrying, it may be worthwhile to wonder what C.G. Jung meant when he wrote Flying Saucers. These rumors, or the possible physical existence of such objects, example given, UFOs, seem to me so significant that I feel myself compelled to sound a note of warning. My conscience as a psychiatrist bids me fulfill my duty and prepare those few who will hear me for coming events which are in accord with the end of an era. I am concerned for all those who are caught unprepared by the events in question and disconcerted 
by their incomprehensible nature. And with those words, that wraps up chapter 9, kids. Next week, we're going to be reading chapter 10, What's Going On in Tycho. I'm Dave Grave. This is a Zero Brain Podcast. You guys have a good one. Peace.